sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, healthcare on the road. Then, our Red Book, a compelling collection of essays about first menstrual periods and what that teaches us about life. You don't want to miss it. But first, what was your first car? That seemingly innocuous question is one of the best icebreakers around, as everyone has a story. It belies an important aspect of our lives here in the United States. No other innovation has so quickly altered as many aspects of modern society as the automobile. As Americans, we didn't invent the automobile. That honor goes to Germany. But over the last century, cars have come to define much of what it means to be an American. It's a symbol of independence and personal freedom, which allows us to be mobile. It transformed our society, shaping our modern culture. Everyone can point to small ways cars impact their lives on a personal level. They've affected all aspects of society, such as family life, the economy, and even the environment. It's hard to find a movie, book, or TV show that doesn't have some type of automobile in it. Automobiles over time have brought with them both positive and negative effects than any other invention throughout transportation history. As one of my colleagues said to me, driving is life. Thus, it should come as no surprise that cars have had a huge impact on our health. The loss of driving privileges is, by my own experiences, one of the most contentious healthcare issues that healthcare providers face. Today, we delve into this issue and help address some of the healthcare questions surrounding it. Joining us today to discuss the topic is Dr. Matthew Rizzo. He is Chair of Neurology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Rizzo, welcome. Thank you so much, Joe. Nice to be here. It's so good to have you here. And Dr. Joseph Draskowski. He is a Professor of Neurology at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Draskowski, welcome. Thank you. Great honor to be here. It's so good to have you both. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Rizzo. What are the cognitive skills that are needed to drive a car? Well, it's uh, it's a lot. You've got to be functioning on all cylinders to make a little <laughs> <Yes>. joke. <laughs> you, you've got to be able to uh, uh, perceive, and that's a seeing especially, but also hearing and feeling the way your car is functioning. You've got to be able to pay attention to search a really complicated environment that stretches far ahead of you, but also behind and on the sides. Um, You've got to uh, be able to remember the rules of the road, where your car is in relation to other cars, and the actions you need to take in certain situations, uh, the meanings of road signs. You have to be able to uh, decide and plan, uh, you know, in certain situations, should I go, should I not go? Um, You need to be able to implement those actions, um, and then you need to monitor whether what you intended was what actually happened, 
which means you need to have situation awareness and awareness of, of yourself in order to make these corrections and be safe and to get where you're going, which, by the way, you also have to remember. So as I listen to you, it's a pretty complex task to drive a car. It is a very complex task. And even more, it's under pressure of time and un- under pressure of uh, hazard. You know, if you if you make a wrong move, uh, if you're traveling 60, uh, 60 miles an hour, that's 88 feet in one second. You could end up in a ditch against the pole in the other lane and hit another car. So things happen fast and you've got to be with it. That makes perfect sense. Uh, Dr. Driskowski, let's kind of ask the similar question, but more focusing on what are the physical skills that are now needed to drive a car? Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And these kind of dovetail with the cognitive abilities, not only, do, you know, so, so you have to put the cognitive in with the physical skills. So as a, as a person, you have to be able to control the vehicle. I think that's the ultimate goal. To do that, it requires a certain motor skill, uh, meaning you have to be able to control your muscles and have input from your, from your brain to your muscles and, and drive it in an appropriate manner. This also requires, uh, you know, good visual skills. You have to have certain... Um, a level of vision, uh, typically that's prescribed by law in, in each individual state, but the vision is so important as well. Um, you'd have to be able to maintain, you know, at least uh, for those who have some type of physical disability, if you will, or a lack, uh, less than full ability, people have to, they can adapt and they can do an adaptive driving thing. But for the most part, you have to be able to have the cognitive skills and then translate that into, into muscle and motor skills and motor action to drive the vehicle well. So I think uh, it's, it's, how should I say, it's, it's very complex, as Dr. Rizzo said. Super helpful there. Uh, Dr. Rizzo, let's talk about age and driving. I know that the age at which someone can drive legally varies state by state, but I'm going to ask you this as a cognitive neurologist driving expert. At what age is a person really prepped to drive legally, uh, not legally, like mentally, uh, from a cognitive perspective? I think that a person can drive at any age, but I think the risk of driving increases the older you get. And that's because there are a host of conditions that come along with aging. Uh, You know, there are uh, slowing, um, there's arthritis, you might have trouble turning your neck to look at the mirrors, you might have cataracts, you might have retinal degeneration, your hearing might not be so good, you might have arthritis in your hands. You might have cognitive decline. Uh, after age 65 or so, everybody's a standard deviation uh, or more slower on standardized tests. It doesn't mean you have a disease, but if something happens, you may not be prepared to respond as quickly, even if you know what you need to do. Um, on top of that, there are diseases that are Uh, much more common with aging like Alzheimer's disease that are ultimately going to rob you of your powers to do things effectively and safely like driving a car. So uh, I don't think there's a hard and fast age. I don't think we should set one. That would be ageism. But I think one needs to look for uh, symptoms and signs of problems uh, that might merit a closer look. Uh, at a person's driving or whether they're developing a disease that's affecting their driving and other aspects of their lives. That, that makes perfect sense. And, and, and Dr. Could, go, go ahead, Dr. Driscoss, you had a comment. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I would just, I would just like to agree with that. That that's a very nice uh, summary of, of how I view it as well. You know, as a practicing neurologist, we, we deal with this all the time. I'm going to take a step back and go on the younger side and, um, I just remember when I was ready to drive at the age of, you know, I had my first car before I could drive legal. I bought the car ready to go. As soon as I turned 16, man, I was, I thought I was ready to go. But, you know, at that age group, in the younger ages, sometimes we talk about physical abilities, but we also talk about wisdom and experience. So, um, you know, we, Dr. Rizzo and I know that the, the crash rate in young people is quite high, especially teenage boys. And 
that's a judgment thing. So you have to put that into the equation as well. And and again, I don't think there's a there's a set age other than what you can legally drive, but you know, at age 16 for most states, but it is one of those things where we have to put that into the equation as well. Appreciate that. But you just brought up a huge point and I'm going to ask this, uh, uh, try to settle this out. And I, and I want to not get offend any of my listeners when I ask this question. So, uh, boys or girls, uh, men or women, is there a gender disparity in who can operate a car? better maybe he's a better man. well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna take it i'm gonna go with the teenagers here the teenage it's clear that teenage boys do not know how to operate motor vehicles as well as teenage girls and i will tell you that if you look at statistics at least the last time i looked at it um men have a, they they do quite a bit better at uh maiming and hurting people on the road as well because whether that's a testosterone influence or an influence of just the way you know uh, men are it but I, but unless unless there's something new that's the way i understand it uh, dr rizzo you want to weigh in on this one before we go to another topic i say that's a tough question and i think any way you answer it would be filled with some implicit bias depending whether you're a man or a woman asking the question i think let the facts speak for themselves. And I would agree with uh, Dr. Drazkowski that uh, young men say uh, below, uh, you know, in teen, year, teen years are like a different species in terms of the risk that they'll accept, you know, given their lack of knowledge and acquisition of the rules of the road. Uh, among the older, I guess women live longer. Uh, so in a sense, they may have more risk overall because they're more likely to be driving. On the other hand, um, of an age, uh, men were sort of more uh, primarily the driver in the home and less likely to admit that they have a problem because they maybe feel like they have to keep going and it would be loss of face if they didn't drive, even if they had uh, cognitive weaknesses. So there's a reason to believe that men might have more risk, but I don't think that all the answers are in. Maybe they are, but I don't know them. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, Dr. Driscoski, let's switch the topic just a little bit and uh, let's get into the issues of impairment. I'm going to start with one of the most common uh, ones, which is alcohol. Um, what is that legal alcohol limit to drive? I know most people know it, but I'll ask it uh, just to be clear. Yeah, for most most around the country, it's point zero point eight, um, uh, and it's 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 well known amongst law enforcement and people. And but you know, the 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 truth is, is that that's, that's, you know, what's prescribed by law, but you can be judged as impaired at lower levels if you're driving poorly. So that's, that's what, that's the minimum. But, uh, you know, people, people do uh, drive, you know, still one of the biggest public health issues that we deal with, you know, leading cause of death in young individuals is, you know, is one, one of the leading causes of death in individuals of, of a certain age, young, young age, is uh, impairment and, and uh, death due to, uh, uh, you know, from alcohol, alcohol-related crashes. So it, it's a, it, it is a huge issue. Uh, Dr. Rizzo, uh, not speaking about the legal alcohol limit, but at what point is a person impacted by alcohol? And, and what does alcohol exactly do to a person uh, especially when they're driving? I think there are different views on what risks society will tolerate. I think Dr. Dreskowski mentioned an absolute number, 0 0.8 milligrams per deciliter of alcohol. It's 0 0.5 in Europe. And I don't oh. think alcohol has any different effect on the brain in Europe, but the societal tolerance for alcohol in the blood is lower. And so what does it do? It slows your reaction times which, you know, I mentioned before in older people uh, is, is an issue. So uh, I don't want to say drinking alcohol makes you an older driver, but it does uh, reduce your ability to respond to threats, uh, to observe uh, what's going on around you. It also um, leaves you less aware of your own impairment, uh, which is a serious problem. How many times have you heard the story of the person who said, hey, I'm fine, you know, I didn't have too much to drink. And then you hear that there was a fatal crash after that. So it right. actually numbs your mind to the impairment that you have, which is particularly serious because then you're likely to take risks 
that you should not have taken because you're very impaired. So it can affect you at a lot of different levels, uh, but uh, perception of risk and slowing and bad judgment are uh, special uh, problems with alcohol. Thanks so much for that. And to our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're discussing driving and healthcare, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Uh, Dr. Draskowski, uh, one of the biggest uh, new medications or supplements is CBD and THC. It is everywhere. Uh, and I would say that in any state or city that I, that we would all visit. So my question, is there a legal limit of how much can be in your system? Uh, and what would it do to you? That is an extremely tough question. I think that we don't know. I think right now that people are trying to define this. Uh, there are several, um, agencies around the country that I know that are looking into it. But, you know, CBD is the cannabidiol, and that one is probably less impactful than regular cannabis, which has THC, which is the more cognitively challenging issue. And and I think it's all over the board. I'd love to hear what Dr. Rizzo has to say about it, but I find this to be a tough question in practice. Um, I, I, you know, many of my patients are epilepsy patients and they, they use this. It's a very common drug to be used amongst this and pain and many other uh, clinical applications and guiding them and giving them advice on how to do it. I just basically say, we, we don't know. And that we're again, defining the limits and I prefer them not to be driving while impaired. People can be drive while, you know, they can drive while impaired on any exogenous substance, any drug, if you will, many, many different drugs impair you in different ways, very much like alcohol. But uh, I'm not saying that that's, that uh, cannabis does that, but it is it is a possibility and it, it does affect people in different ways. So, you, you know, broad statements are, are very tough on cannabis at this time. Dr. Rizzo, you want to weigh in on, because this is, I think we get this question fairly frequently now. I would say that I, I don't have uh, that much a concern about CBD, although I think the answer is not in yet. I, CBD is a, a compound that doesn't have the psychoactive effects of a THC, which is in marijuana that people smoke or put in brownies or y- you name it. Right. Um, THC does have an effect on the brain. So um, people who smoke marijuana, who buy legal marijuana or illicit marijuana probably are at risk for changes in their performance uh, with slowing and changes in judgment. But I think there's not enough evidence yet to say that it's unsafe, but absence of evidence is not evidence of uh, uh, an effect. Sure, Uh, There may be an effect. And like Dr. Juskowski said, we've got more work to do. One of the interesting things is because some cars now have monitoring systems in them, one might do experiments or make observations comparing drivers who use marijuana or CBD and those who don't, or following drivers who didn't uh, use CBD or marijuana and then start using it. <clears throat> These are big population studies that a person could do. There might be reasons why they would be hard to do, but I think this sort of thing is in our future where we monitor health with uh, a digital uh, devices that we carry or that we ride around in or at home. And we can tell how our diseases and our drugs affect us in the real world. That will be a real boon and very interesting results. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I know that uh, several agencies around the country, I know, you know, authoritative, authoritative legal agencies around the country are looking into crash rates related to uh, these particular um, uh, substances. So more to follow. So be uh, this is fascinating, and I want to kind of just uh, speaking on medical conditions. Let's talk about uh, some medical conditions that are important to know about because they often lead to pulling away of keys uh, from the driver. Uh, and Dr. Rizzo, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you brought up cognitive impairment, uh, like mild cognitive impairment, early Alzheimer's disease. Uh, these are lengthy conditions. They can go on for years. So my question is, what's the practical answer 
to the listener out there or the family member who's wondering, my family member has this, when should that person no longer drive? Oh, I want to say that it's not so clear, but there are things you can look for. First, I want to mention that there are conditions like Alzheimer's disease or very poor vision that are ubiquitous that people have thought about in terms of recommendations. But there are many people who have diseases or conditions or combinations of conditions. Remember, the older you get, the more likely you are to get trouble with your vision, trouble with your hearing, slowing, maybe you're on some medicines that will slow you down. So it's a real complex cocktail of things that affect a person. So I think you need to think about what happens to people operationally that affects them. And, you know, ask yourself, uh, you know, is my loved one having trouble? Uh, are they are they having dents on their car or scratches? Uh, did they get lost? You know, sometimes people go to the dentist and they'll come back three hours later and it took them an extra hour and a half to get back because they get yes. lost. I know it happened to my father. Um, there might be comments from your friends or, or the neighbors saying, you know, you should watch Bob. Bob was weaving on the street. He didn't notice another car was coming by. Or maybe you're riding in the car with, you know, the, your loved one. And you might ask, why are they going so slow? Uh, well, why are they speeding up? And uh, why why did they confuse the brake and the gas pedals? Um, you know, you might get a hint from the doctor who says, hey, I'm kind of worried about your your mom or your dad <clears throat> because <clears throat> they have this, that, or the other condition that can affect driving, like they have really bad vision or they're, they're deaf or they have trouble moving around. Uh, surrogate things like falls uh, can actually uh, be more associated with car crashes. So I, I think you've got to keep your eyes peeled and look for these kind of signs that uh, let you know that there's a problem. And if there is a problem, um, sometimes a physician can help you, but sometimes a physician is unable to say how this particular condition or this re report of problems in the real world maps onto the real world activity like driving because they're not there and they can't observe. So sometimes it's possible to send the, the person to a neuropsychologist to measure thinking and to make a judgment <clears throat> Or to get a driving evaluation, which could be in the form of a, a simulation to see whether someone is even fit enough to get on the road to be road tested. Ultimately, it's the state that uh, gives or revokes the license, and it's possible to recommend a road test for a person. I appreciate that. Dr. Driskowski, what are the legal issues related to the situation? Uh, maybe it's a cognitive impairment like Alzheimer's, or maybe it's a, uh, someone who has seizures and loss of consciousness. What are the legal issues related to this? Well, um, it's it's pretty much uh, how uh, in what what sense, Joe? I mean, is it is it more or less? Are you worried about what's going to happen to the person who causes a crash? Correct. Well, yeah, to the to the let's just say to if if something should happen to them, yeah. uh, or to the healthcare person who is who they yeah. come to, either or. Well, I, I can I can address the 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 personal thing when when people have a crash related to a medical condition, it's they're held as just as liable as if they were just having inattention or some other if they were causing a crash for any other reason. So, in a lot of ways, that's a very disruptive thing. And um, people I people that I've known that have driven against the law or against medical advice have actually ended up in jail. I know that's a rare thing, but wow. it, it certainly could happen. Um, there's a there's a in, in in my opinion there's there's a there's a when i looked at a study a few years ago we looked at how the um how the officers who investigate things they have a lot of leeway on how they do things so they tend to give the patient the benefit of the doubt but it doesn't dissuade them from somebody who could i don't know about you where you live in florida joe or, or dr rizzo where you live but here in arizona everything's involved in there's a lot of lawyers there's a lot of ambulance lawyers there's a lot of people accident attorneys that go after car crashes and they advertise every day of the week over here so you know if you're deemed to be held accountable even if it's a medical condition or even thought to be a medical condition is still you're still liable for the crash so there's a there's a lot of a lot of issues there I appreciate that. Dr. Rizzo, uh, one of the things that we keep seeing in new cars uh, is that there are either 
uh, programming for self-driving, uh, self-parking, and now we know that there are definitely self-driving cars that are being trialed and utilized uh, throughout the U.S. So my question to you, at putting on your futurist hat, will this make this entire issue obsolete? Well, eventually it might, but it sure isn't going to for some time. Um, there are different levels of autonomy in a car and there are certain systems that people are familiar with now in newer cars and they include lane control and uh braking when a car breaks in front of them but there's no fully autonomous vehicle so driving in an autonomous vehicle can be complicated actually in a person who has limited capacity they not only have to drive their car they have to pay attention to the systems that that's in their car which may function perfectly well, or maybe it's having difficulty. And they may be so lulled into inaction because they're not in the car that they may be sleepy, inert, uh, busy with something else like a streaming video. And so there's a possibility that the car is doing something and it's the wrong thing and they can't take over because they're not aware of it and because they're not quick enough because they had an impairment to begin with. Another problem in these partially automated vehicles that we have now is that um, one needs to understand the mode of operation. What is my car capable of doing now and what should I expect from it? Should I expect it to drive perfectly well in the city when actually the mode that they're in is better for highways? So there can be some confusion and a mismatch between the system and the understanding of the person who may have impairments to begin with of the system. So in the meantime, I think that uh, automated vehicles are probably not a solution for older drivers and they may actually potentially cause more problems than they solve. We don't know the answer to that. Ultimately, you know, one would like to whistle to the car and say, come here. The car comes and takes you to wherever you want to go, and then you don't even have to do anything, and you could be doing something else. Uh, but that day isn't here yet. And by the way, one of the attractions of driving a car is actually driving a car. It's fun. So people may not want to be in fully automated vehicles. Fair enough. It's time to open up our social media mailbag. Mr. Postman. Our director, Isabella Da Silva, is here with questions from our listeners for our experts. Isabella, what do we have today? Lorena in Miami. My mother is 90 years old and independent. She continues to drive, but I continue to worry about her driving, even though she says she's only driving about a mile. Are shorter distances safer? Dr. Rizzo, you want to take that question for us? I would say that it's probably safer driving closer to home, not in rush hour, not in bad weather, uh, not at night, uh, not in heavy traffic uh, than it is, say, driving uh, on the highway with lots of cars at fast speeds and far from home where, say, the older driver would be unfamiliar with potentially the environment. So it's probably safer. Uh, on the other hand, I want to say that most crashes occur close to home, uh, but that may be just a function of mostly people drive close to home. So I, I would say that, yes, it is safer to have small trips that are in uh, unchallenging road conditions for an older driver in general. And specific for your mom, I'm not sure, but I'd say that is at least one countermeasure that she's using. I also want to say that I did mention before that or maybe I didn't, but I'll say it now that one of the one of the signs that a person is failing in driving is limiting their driving the way it sounds like your mother is doing. So uh, if you have concerns about her driving, I would recommend that you uh, mention to her to mention her doctor, or if you accompany her to uh, a doctor's visit, mention your concerns. I know that it can be touchy, but you love your mom and you want what's best for her. That's all. What it's all about. Uh, could, yeah, go ahead, Doctor Draskowski. 
Uh, could I add, yeah, that, that, that I agree. And the other thing we can do as family members, and I had to do this with my father, was that we, we had him tested on an annual basis. So when we, we had raised concerns and some of us had raised concerns and he, it turns out he passed the test. We sent him down to the motor vehicle department and he actually passed the road test. He did an AARP test and he did okay. But then after a while, you could just see it slipping away. And so, so I think, you know, careful, even if you'd let your mother drive or if she's, she does well, you can still do follow-ups and do kind of a routine assessment. I think that would be very helpful. That gives them a sense that you're listening to them and you're helping them out, but you're do ultimately doing the right thing. All good advice. Uh, Isabella, what else do we have uh, in the mailbag? Victor in Tampa. My wife had a stroke, but recovered well. How does one know whether a person can return to driving after a stroke? Dr. Draskowski, could you take that one? Yeah, I think uh, there's recovering well and there's recovering fully. And I think sometimes, as Dr. Rizzo mentioned, sometimes our cognitive ability should be tested depending on what kind of stroke it was. There's physical ability and then there's cognitive ability. And I think that you have to really have both of these things to meld together to drive safely. So like I was saying with the last question, sometimes it's best to have that done by professionals and takes off the subjectivity off of the off the off of the family doing it. So in Arizona, we have an, an adaptive driving program. We'll often have some physical therapists work with people that have had strokes or other medical conditions and have them do on the road testing. And Dr. Riz is an expert in simulator testing. I think that's where I'd love to get to that point at some point in time, but many of us don't have that available to us. So in the interim, we actually have them do on the road testing with an adaptive driving program or the MVD or other other things to make sure that they can put it all together, not just the physical nature of it, you know, the weakness that's recovered, but the cognitive nature of it as well. It's so important. We have so many questions, but we only have time for one more listener question. Isabella, what is it? Matt in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. If my family member has a medical procedure with moderate sedation, like for a colonoscopy or dental procedure, how long must they wait before it's safe for them to drive? Uh, Dr. Uh, Rizzo, could you take that one for us? I'd say they have to wait some period of time, but it really depends what the procedure is and what they, an anesthesia they had. Uh, if it were general anesthesia, um, what the condition is that they had the anesthesia for, whether it was local anesthesia, whether it was a, a short acting agent or not, you know, that just has a, a, a short half-life of say a, a half hour or an hour. So I would see that in somebody who's healthy and has an outpatient procedure, it should be at least several hours before they drive. And after the procedure, probably someone else should drive them home. Uh, but again, uh, it's a complex question you ask because there are many different kinds of surgeries and anesthetics, and I don't think one size fits all. Appreciate that. And I want to thank you both. Uh, Dr. Rizzo and you, Dr. Driskowski, this uh, week ago on for another hour or two, because there are so many questions, but I think this is a, a fantastic uh, start uh, for us. And I want to just, uh, again, thank you both for all your advice today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure and a privilege. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful to have both of you. We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Rizzo. He is chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. And Dr. Joseph Driskowski, a professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Both of them are experts in the field of driving and neurological issues. And up next, the author of our Red Book, a remarkable collection of intimate stories related to menstrual periods, Rachel Nailbuff, joins us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is what's health got to do with it. You know, in medical school, we're taught so many aspects of the human life cycle. 
I have heard long, eloquent lectures on birth, neuroscience, the heart, and many other organ systems. Yet I must admit, I can't recall too much discussion about menstrual periods and menstruation overall. Oftentimes, I felt that most of our knowledge on the topic came from outside medicine and more from listening to your patients or friends carefully if you chose to do so. Menstrual periods are such a part of the human life cycle. And yet for men and even women, the entire process sometimes seems like it's enshrouded in mystery. Well, our next guest is here to help. Rachel Nailbuff is the gatherer of essays from around the world told by women and men as it pertains to periods. She joins us now to talk about this extraordinary new collection, our Red Book, Intimate Histories of Periods Growing and Changing. And she joins us from New Haven, Connecticut. Rachel, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. It is a delight to have you on. And I'll start us off. Can you tell us what was the genesis for the idea of creating this book? Yes, absolutely. Um, So this book started actually almost 20 years ago when I was a teenager. Um, I collected stories of people's first periods in my own community as a way to create a resource that I wish I had had when I had my first period. And um, it kind of unexpectedly took off because, as you mentioned, there's a real absence of dialogue around menstruation and people really wanted this resource. And it became this best-selling book called My Little Red Book. And it was really a kind of mother-daughter gift, um, something you would give to your teen around their first period. Um, But something really interesting happened after that book came out. Um, Some of the most enthusiastic responses to that collection were actually um, single dads (laughs) who um, wrote to me in droves saying basically i i needed this book to inform myself or i didn't have the words i wanted to give this to my teen and you know i don't have my own stories to share so about 10 years ago i started thinking um this, this kind of dialogue really needs to be expanded beyond just mothers and daughters. That's actually too limited. Um, and in the past decade, as um, I'm sure all of you listeners are aware, menstruation has become less societally taboo. And so there are stories that um, in, in Western cultures in the US, people are really only beginning to explore um, Stories now no longer just need to be about countering silence or stigma or shame. We're really just at the beginning now of getting to talk about the huge range of feelings around menstruation, whether it's your first period, a missing period, um, an endless period, transitioning genders on your period, um, and how menstruation is connected to all of these huge, important topics. Um, politics, healthcare, um, illness, trauma. Um, it's really at the center of so much. And it, as, as you kind of referenced, we're yes. really just at the beginning of unpacking all of it. And so we're ready and it's time. Um, and it's time to invite us all into this conversation um, about menstruation. We're ready. I, I can't agree with you more if there hasn't been ever been a time. This, this is definitely the moment. Uh, so I'm curious, how did you collect these stories? What was your process in, 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 in gathering these from different folks? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. Um, I, I first, I just want to say, I really had to surrender to a slow process that was built around trust um, and relationships. Um, these are very intimate stories. If you read the book, sometimes you almost feel like, gosh, I can't believe this person is saying this. Um, it's so intimate. It's it's profound. Um, and it so it really began through my own family, actually, at the, at the center of it. The first story that I heard came from my great aunt. 
um, who actually got her first period while fleeing Nazi-occupied Poland. And um, it happened while she was on a train and um, with the train was stopped and everyone was told to go outside and was strip searched for valuables and um, any signs of sort of being Jewish, which she was. And she got her first period in this incredibly traumatic moment, which I now understand. And we can talk about this as like a, a trauma response, actually. But basically, hearing this story, which she had never shared until I was a teenager and got my first period, opened the floodgates. Um, and it's, I think this is true so much around our bodies and health. When you hear one person talk about something that's sort of unspeakable, it opens the door. And hearing this story, all the other women in my family started talking and said, you know what, I've never shared my story either. I've never shared it with my own daughter. We have to, we have to pass these down. We have to write these down. These are a part of our history. These are a part of who we are. And my individual family members, after we, after we sort of archived their stories, they would say, okay, you know, I have another friend that you need to talk to. You need to talk to um, my friend's daughters because they're twins, or I know this person who got her first period on 9-11, or it just, it just kept going. Um, people want to share these stories. They, they contain so much about who we are. And so it's, it almost, sorry for the pun, but it felt like a flow. Sure, sure. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah, I've been on um, and it hasn't stopped and it's only gotten more rich and complex as time has gone on. Let me ask you. So like when people submitted uh, these intimate stories, these essays, how did you decide whether you would include them or perhaps, you know, this is nice, but I I don't want to include this in this book? It's, it's interesting. Um, so people didn't submit their stories. I was really almost like um, a, a researcher on a quest, truly on a journey from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and so the journey of how I got from one person to the next is really a part of the book. Um, and so I I kind of selected the stories where it felt like um, the story of how I got to this stranger who was at this point 10 degrees removed from me right, <laughs> right. is kind of fascinating. Um, and I I wanted to highlight the stories that really altered me and sort of opened a door to a new realm. So um, just for example, um, I talked to this group of youth activists in Wisconsin who was who were really active in supplying free menstrual care products in their community during COVID and are fighting to have free menstrual care products in their high school. And they said, you know what? Um, this is actually a really intersectional issue and you have to talk with our friend who's a climate activist. And so then I talked with the climate activist. And then um, after talking with this climate activist, I thought, I want to share these stories with the people that are making these policies. And so I wrote um, on a total lark without any expectations to the prime minister of Scotland, (laughs) people who are making um, policies on on a national level to make period products free. And I ended up speaking with the health minister of Scotland who was behind this policy. So it was... um, I could never have anticipated where these stories took me from the beginning, which was excruciating, I think, for my publisher. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) But but thank goodness Um, for us. Yeah. (laughs) But it was a a ride. Um, And so it wasn't like me sitting at my desk sorting through a pile. You know, I'm curious, as a man who read this wonderful collection, I'm curious on two points. Was it hard to gather essays from men? And what do you think a man reading this book may take away from this collection as opposed to a a female reader? Oh, such an important question. And um, 
my kind of secret hope for this book is that it will be given as a gift to sons, brothers, boyfriends, fathers, um, who might not, you know, think of themselves as, as the reader of this book, but in a way that's kind of who it's designed for. Um, so the some of the, the male contributors in this book, um, I chose them very, very carefully, and um, it was interesting which ones came my way. The story that um, really made me think, ah, men have to be in this book, comes from a father who is asked by his teenage daughter to go buy menstrual care products. And he realizes in as a man in his 40s in the supermarket, he has kind of a panic attack. Right. That he has no idea what to buy. He has no understanding of what his, <laughs> his child is going through. And yes. he basically is able to laugh at the fact that he's totally uninformed and see that this is absurd that like half the population makes it to adulthood um, this way. And so kind of through humor and other people's painful, <laughs> but also, um, yes, sometimes funny experiences. I hope it becomes an inviting way for men, cis men, to see that um, we're, we've all been deprived, um, all of us, not, not just men, but almost all of us have been deprived of basic health literacy. And that, that silence, that lack of information actually isn't okay. Um, and it has consequences. And um, it's interesting, though, because the men who were most willing, able to speak um, about their their own relationship to menstruation, I think um, it, it's interesting. There's a story from a son who is very open to talking to his mom about her period. I asked so many men, would you want to interview your mom about her story? And the most willing person um, who came my way was someone whose mom is disabled and just has a very different relationship to talking to his mother about her health, bodies. Um, they're much more interconnected and open with each other. And so it's just a reminder that everyone is coming to this from a different place, but that, um, of course, disability very much changes how much people talk about bodies and health. It is so important. I love the way that you've uh, framed it. And I love this idea as a, a gift uh, for those who, who who may feel uncomfortable or, and has a way to kind of uh, reach out and learn from this. I'm going to ask you an unfair question and I'm going to apologize in advance <laughs> because I know it's such a beautiful collection, but was there one essay that <laughs> you consider your personal favorite? <laughs> um, well, I'll say there was one piece that um, I think really, there was kind of like no going back once I heard it. There was like a before and after. Um, this one comes from a contributor who's in Brazil. It's a, it's a global collection. Yes. And I think I'm, I'm talking about this piece because it sheds a lot of light about our culture here in the U.S which often we can't see, right? Because we're in it. And um, she talks about how, and this kind of connects to talking to men also, about how she taught her her toddler, her, her young son about menstruation. Um, oh. And basically the story is that he, at a young age, saw traces of her period and asked like, mom, what is this? And instead of hiding, any signs of her period or dismissing him or saying that it was private or whatever you might expect. Um, she pauses and she says that this is nourishment and this is actually what makes babies grow. This is what made you grow. This is a life source. Um, and she's indigenous and she's drawing from her indigenous tradition, um, which views menstrual blood as sacred and as a life source, right? But in this moment, her young son looks at her in total awe and is basically like, your period is this like superpower, <laughs> you know? And then from then on, every month, this young boy basically is so excited about his mom's period and is like, when are you getting your period? Is it about to happen? Tell me, you know? And so 
just when I heard this. <laughs> wow. Like, oh my God. We, I could, the country I'm in is, we couldn't be further from this reality. That seems actually so healthy and normal and basic and based in science actually. And like, but, and, and I, I mean, just think about who that little boy is going to grow up to become and how most of us are so far from from growing up with that inherent knowledge, but also appreciation. Rachel, I love that story. That that is extraordinary. <laughs> I I want to thank you so much. Uh, for giving us your time today to talk about this uh, remarkable collection. Uh, This is uh, truly amazing. We just appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you again. It's been such a pleasure. It has been our pleasure. We've been talking to Rachel Nailbuff. She is uh, the gatherer of essays. I love that term for a beautiful (laughs) new collection entitled Our Red Book, Intimate Histories of Periods, growing and changing. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Isabella De Silva is our director. Next week's program is our show that asks the question, is my doctor competent? If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362. Email us at health at wjct.org or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.